right. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church on this first service of 2008. It's 2008. Here we go. Another year. Let's make this a good one. All right. If you have your Bibles, guess which book we're turning to. Guess which chapter we're turning to. You can even guess which verse we're turning to because it's the same as last week and the week before that and four weeks before that. We're not in a hurry here at Woodland Hills Church. We just say the Bible not real fancy. Not a lot of slick advertising campaigns here. We just go by the Bible. And we're uh, hovering over the Lord's Prayer as it's found in the book of Luke. And I want to title this message, because this is the passage that we're dealing with here today, Daily Bread, Daily Forgiveness. Daily Bread, Daily Forgiveness. And it says this, I'm reading from the TNIV version. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. We thought we knew how, uh, but you're turning everything upside down. This is behind the question. And so we teach us from scratch. What should we say when we pray? John did that. We want you to do it. So Jesus said, fine. When you pray, it's this simple. Say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Several weeks ago, we dealt with Jesus' concept of Father, Abba, Father, that intimate conception of Father that he introduced into the world. And then last week, we talked about what it means to uh, keep the name of the Lord holy or to ask him to keep his name holy and what it means to pray for his kingdom to come. What I want to talk about here tonight is uh, what it means to say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive those who sin against us. That's the topic. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for teaching us this prayer. Open it up to us to let us know what it means, how profound it is, its significance. Help us to pray this prayer authentically all the time and to live this prayer authentically all the time that we would, in fact, be walking, talking advertisements and embodiers of your kingdom. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Give us this day our daily bread. You can find quite a bit of academic discussion about what this means. Give us this day our daily bread. But the majority of scholars, and they're the ones who are right because they agree with me, Hold that. It's simply an expression that says meet our daily needs. Daily bread stands for meet our daily needs. It's not specifically about bread, as we don't also have to pray about tomatoes and mashed potatoes and other things. No, it's an idiomatic expression saying, Lord, meet our daily needs. It actually comes out of the Old Testament, where some of you will recall the children of Israel are going through the desert, and uh, every day God would give them manna from heaven, bread from heaven. And they had to trust God every day for bread from heaven. The the bread would dissolve after a day, so they could never store it up. It was God's way of just teaching them to trust him to meet their daily needs. And so Jesus is saying that prayer is still one that we should be praying. Lord, meet our daily needs. Now there are some people in this congregation, and probably some people who will be listening through iPod, for whom it's easy to understand why they pray pray that prayer. Because they're in poverty. And they live hand to mouth. And they easily pray, God, today will you give us some food? Because if you don't show up, we're not going to eat. 
And God, if you don't show up, we're not going to have a, a roof over our head. We've got people in Woodland Hills Church who are in that kind of situation. And it's easy to understand why they would pray that prayer and easy to understand how they, how they could pray that prayer authentically. And there's no virtue in poverty and there's no sin in wealth. But the one advantage of being in a situation where you can authentically pray those prayers, you learn how to trust God for your daily needs in a way that folks who got money sometimes don't. Uh, the folks I know at Woodland Hills Church who have lived in poverty are people who have just learned how to trust God to meet daily needs in a way that, I, that doesn't come natural for me. Uh, and they're thankful about a lot of things that I don't, I have to remind myself to be thankful for. I find that when they pray, they're, they're very practical in their prayers. God, you know, just give us a roof over our head and thank you for the, for the, for the way you put food on my table today and thank you for the health that I have today. Uh, they, they develop a day-by-day a, a -day trust in God that some of us don't learn. Don't learn. The question I want to ask then is this. I am, by world standards, a wealthy person. Probably most people in this room are. Uh, I didn't wake up this morning wondering where the food on my table is going to come from. Uh, I've got enough stored up for a couple of weeks' worth at least. Most of us in this room have our refrigerators pretty full. Uh, we have maybe a little bit of a savings account. Some of us have retirement accounts. We don't live hand to mouth. And the question I want to ask is this. How do I, how do we, pray this prayer authentically? How do I really ask God, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, when I can just go to the grocery store and get it? How do you pray this prayer authentically? The answer I want to submit to you is this. By realizing that however much you have, however much money you have, however much security you have in this world, as a matter of fact, you need God to meet your daily needs as much as the poorest person on this planet, as much as the person on the brink of starvation. Wealth creates the illusion of self-sufficiency. Wealth creates the illusion of self-security. The truth is that none of us are self-sufficient and none of us are secure. It's just that it's easy to forget that when you got stuff. There's a man in our congregation, he just sent me, in response to last week's message about keeping the name of the Lord holy and set apart and sanctified, magnifying the name of the Lord, he sent me a testimony that was really a, a good one. He's been attending here for a number of years, I guess since 1996. His name is David Wakasuki, or Dale Wakasuki. Uh, he doesn't live hand to mouth. He doesn't live in poverty. He's got a very good job. He's got a really good income. And up until a little while ago, he was in very good health. He was a, we used to referee high school basketball games. 49 years old, very good health, got a family, got a couple of kids. And then something happened to him. It actually got on the news. Uh, and so I want to show here a little uh, WCCO website a news clip of what happened to this member of our congregation. Let's watch it. During a boys' basketball game last week in Fridley, the MVP was not a player. She was a spectator. As John Larson shows us, a 16-year-old girl jumped into action to save a ref who collapsed on the court. He kind of fell and then he twisted and caught himself and then he fell back. But Lindsay Paradise can remember the events of last Thursday night as if they happened just moments ago. The Fridley Jr. was watching her classmates take on Simley. With four minutes left in the game, the unexpected happened. One of the referees collapsed. He was having a heart attack. I was 
holding his neck back to open the airway and checking the pulse. I couldn't get one. Without thinking, Lindsay ran down from the bleachers and got referee Dale Wakasugi ready for CPR. She started using the training she had learned just a month before in gym class. Ironically, the boys' basketball coach had been her instructor. One of the nurses, the mothers there said, does someone have a face shield? Lindsay said, I do. But efforts to revive Wakasugi were failing. So Lindsay and her fellow rescuers attached a defibrillator to the referee's body. When I saw Lindsay and I freaked out for a second and I was like, Lindsay, you know, look, get out of there. But then I was like, she knows what she's doing. Go. So she did. The defibrillator helped restart Wakasugi's heart. Four days later, he is on the road to recovery thanks to Thursday night's real MVP. I feel as near perfect as I can. Though it won't show up on any report card, this high school junior is getting an A when it comes to saving lives. God put Lindsay there for some reason in the stands that night, uh, I think, because his message to me was, you know, we're going to keep you around for a little bit longer. And she was put there to, uh, to, to, to save me. Lindsay is in a program called Police Explorers that teaches CPR training. She wants to be a police officer someday and says she couldn't have done it without the help of other rescuers involved. Dale Wakasugi had successful surgery at Mercy Hospital to remove a blocked artery in his chest. He says he plans on returning to the court this season. All right. Amen. He had, uh, I'm told, a full cardiac arrest, and they say that 99% of the time that is fatal unless you have a defibrillator there. Uh, this happens to be a school that has a defibrillator on, a, a, in, in the gym, and I told there's a move to get a, a defibrillator in a lot of gyms, or in all the gyms in, in the uh, state, uh, but that's not the case. But fortunately, this, this gym had a defibrillator, and this young lady, 16-year-old, knew that, and so had the wherewithal to get someone to bring it over and save this man's life. Now, there's a number of questions this would raise, and we'll get into some of these a little, little bit later on. Uh, to what degree uh, was Lindsay's presence in that gym a matter of her free choice, or was it providentially arranged? Uh, was Dale rescued by God, or was it uh, just good luck? And the answer I want to submit is, is a little of both, and we'll get into that a little later on in this series on, that we're doing on prayer. But the bottom line is this. Every good gift comes from the Father above, amen? James 1.17. Uh, this girl was a good gift, and Dale's life is a good gift, and so Dale is very right to be praising God for the good gift of, of, of going on in his life. And the point I want to make is this. Dale didn't wake up this, that morning thinking that he needed to pray to keep his heart going. He probably didn't wake up thinking he needed to pray for food, and he didn't think he needed to pray to get his heart going. But here's the thing. If your heart stops working, you're going to have a hard time earning a living to get food. In fact, you're going to have a hard time eating food. Uh, keeping your heart working is as much a daily need as is getting food. And Dale, had, that wasn't on his mind. Uh, it's just it's something that happened in the middle of, a, uh, towards the end of a, a referee game. Uh, and boom, life changes like that. He could have very easily been dead. The reality is we all skate on very thin ice. We all have daily needs that we need God to meet. Uh, speaking with Dale this week, he now sees very clearly his dependency on God and his need to pray for his heart to stay working and for other areas of his life. Um, his, his ability to earn a living, to have food, to completely depends on a lot of factors that are outside to some degree of his control. 
And so he is as dependent on God as though he needed God to miraculously show up and bring food on his table. Wealth creates the illusion of self-sufficiency. Wealth creates the illusion of self-security. But the truth is, we are all skating on very thin ice. Our lives can change in a second. And some of us know that from experience. You're healthy one moment, you're not the next. You're alive one moment, you're not the next. You got stuff one moment, and you don't the next. I make a good living where I don't worry every day about where my food's going to come from. But that good living depends on my ability to talk, my ability to think, and my ability to write. One accident, and that could all be over with. One bout of throat cancer, that could all be over with. One brain aneurysm, one stroke, one head injury, uh, one, one, one right type of disease, and it's all over. And a lot of that I have no control over. And so I need to pray, God, give me this day, my daily need for a voice, my daily need for a heart that works, my daily need for a brain that's functional, my brain, daily need for eyes that can read, my daily need for fingers that can type. And see, when we, when we acknowledge our radical dependence on God, when we cultivate this way of praying, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, meet our, our daily needs. When you live in that, it increases your awareness of your radical dependency on God, which is true. We are radically dependent on God. It also cultivates in our lives a sense of gratitude for a lot of things we might otherwise be inclined to take for granted. What's true is this. You just took a breath, and that was a good gift from God. Give him thanks. Do you have any thoughts in your mind at all? Is your brain working? That's a gift of God. Give God thanks. This morning you got out of bed, give God thanks. Uh, the, the, the house that you're living in is a gift from God. The food on your table is a gift from God. The clothes that you're wearing is a gift from God. Every positive influence in your life is a gift from God. All the friends in your life are a gift from God. The health that you enjoy, the extent that you enjoy health, is a gift from God. It all is a daily gift. It's all God meeting your daily needs. It's good to ask Him for it, and it's good to thank Him for it. Because it ultimately all goes back to him. And Jesus is teaching us how to cultivate that mindset by telling us that whenever we pray, ask God for our daily needs. Now all of that raises the question that we'll get into a little bit later on in this series on prayer. What do you do when God doesn't come through? What if there's no Lindsay in the crowd and Dale dies? That happens sometimes. Uh, what about the person who, in our congregation, wasn't protected from falling off a roof and now his legs don't work? Or the person who wasn't protected from a bike accident and now her legs and arms don't work, her whole body is paralyzed? Or, or the person who, who has got MS and their body is slowly eroding away? And uh, we can't get into all that right now, but we, we, we insist here at Woodland Hills Church that we just deal with reality and confront these questions head on. I'll, I'll be dealing with that a little bit later on. I have a book on this called Is God to Blame? If that's an issue that you're wrestling with a lot. But right now I'll just say two things. First, it's so important that when you are, take a hit like that, you understand that it's not your fault. Neither is it God's fault. We live in a war zone, and in a war zone, we take hits. Jesus tells us to pray for our daily needs, and we're to trust that praying for our daily needs makes a difference. But in the war zone world in which we live, there are no guarantees, and sometimes we take hit. Remember, that this is nothing new in Christianity. The same disciples that Jesus taught to pray, give us this day our daily bread, all, most of them got martyred 
fed to lions, burned alive at, at, uh, on stakes. And, and so there's no guarantees in this war zone world. The prayer makes a difference, but it doesn't guarantee that, that, that things are all going to go well for us. There's no magic involved in, in, in following Jesus. The second thing is this. When you take hits, whatever that might look like, it's important to still ask God to meet your daily needs, and it's important to thank him for all the positive things in your life. Because the truth is this, so long as you're alive, you're still radically dependent on him. So long as you're alive, you still have things to be thankful for, and it's so important that you look for those. So long as you're alive, you still have an important role to play in the kingdom. And see, if we lose our sense of radical dependence, if we lose our sense of gratitude, it's very easy for us to become cynical and bitter. And then we're not of much use for the kingdom at all. And that's easy for me to say because I'm able-bodied. And if you're out there and you're not able-bodied, that can be hard to hear. But it doesn't change the truth of what I'm saying. To look for things in your life that, that are positive and, and to be looking for God to show you the role that you're now supposed to. It may be different from the role you played before in the kingdom, but it's still a role to play. If you're alive, God's got a purpose for you. Amen. And, and, and be looking for that purpose, open to that person and giving God thanks for all the positive things in your life, knowing that it's just a short amount of time before the negative stuff gets reversed and the kingdom has fully come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Now let's talk about forgiveness. Forgive us as we forgive, have forgiven those who have sinned against us. What does that mean? It's easy to understand why the Lord would tell us to ask for forgiveness because, folks, we sin and we need to ask for forgiveness to get rightly related to God. What I want to wrestle with is this. Why does Jesus say forgive as you've forgiven others? Why does he add that? Because it seems to suggest in this prayer that God's forgiveness of us is predicated on our forgiving others. If we forgive others, God will forgive us. If we don't forgive others, it looks like he's saying we won't be forgiven. And doesn't that make it look like we're sort of earning the right to be forgiven by how we forgive others? But wait a second. Isn't salvation by grace? Why does he add, forgive us, Lord, as we have forgiven others? You actually find this kind of teaching on the part of Jesus where we ask God to do something to us based on how we're treating others or teachings that are related to this, we find stuff like that all over the place in the Gospels. For example, Matthew chapter 7, one of my favorite verses. Jesus says, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Looks like Jesus is saying there that if we refuse to judge others, God will not judge us. But if we judge others, God's going to judge us. That's what the teaching says, isn't it? And doesn't that look like we're earning the right not to be judged by refusing to judge others? But wait a minute. Aren't we saved by grace alone? Don't we get off the hook on being judged because we put our faith in Jesus? So how does this teaching reconcile with that? I love questions like this. Okay, now, folks, this is, I think, huge. Huge. So put on your thinking caps. I'm going to confront a paradigm that most of us, maybe all of us to some degree, have been afflicted with. And it's not your fault. 
we have inherited from the uh, church tradition a way of looking at this text that I think screws us up royally. Let me start by asking this question. Do you know what quid pro quo means? Quid pro quo. I, I use that phrase uh, sometimes in my messages, and I always get people saying, what's that word mean? Were you speaking in tongues there for a second or what? Okay, quid pro quo. It's Latin. It's Latin, and it literally means something for something, as in a favor for a favor. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You hit me, I'm going to hit you back. Quid pro quo. You do me a favor, quid pro quo, I do you a favor. You do harm to me, quid pro quo, I'll do harm to you. And it looks like Jesus is here giving a quid pro quo teaching. If you forgive, quid pro quo, God will forgive you. If you don't forgive, quid pro quo, God's not going to forgive you. If you judge others, quid pro quo, God will judge you. And if you don't judge others, quid pro quo, God won't judge you. And that makes salvation look like a quid pro quo arrangement. Something for something. It, it's the language of bargaining. It's a deal that you're working out with God. It's a contract. Now the reason it looks this way is because we tend to take to the biblical text a quid pro quo mentality. We tend to understand the New Testament and really the whole Bible in legal terms. We bring a legal quid pro quo arrangement. In fact, that quid pro quo is a legal uh, term. Uh, we bring that to the text, and it's not our fault. Because from very early on in the Western church, not so much in the Eastern church, they don't, they're not strapped with this, but in the Western church, we, some of the earliest theologians were, were lawyers. Tertullian, in the second century, was a lawyer. Then he converts to Christianity. And the Reformation, you got legal stuff going all over the place. Calvin was a lawyer who converted to Christianity. So they bring a lawyer's mind to the text. And they see everything in terms of quid pro quo. And, and, and so salvation becomes sort of a legal deal. How many of you can recognize this? And this isn't altogether wrong. I'm just kind of trying to highlight here a paradigm. In, in the legal view, here's how we understand salvation. We are the guilty defendants, and we're in legal trouble, and we're going to go to eternal jail. And God is the legal uh, prosecutor. He's the judge, and he's mad. Justly so, because we are guilty. And he wants to send us to the eternal jail. But Jesus steps in in this court of law, and he's the defense attorney. He works out a legal loophole to get us out of the eternal prison. He works out a quid pro quo arrangement with the Father whereby he takes the punishment instead of us. He gives his life, and that gets out, uh, us out of eternal jail. We get out of, a, we get out of jail for free because of, of what he did. And we're very happy that Jesus found that loophole. We may not understand how exactly that works, but this quid quo pro quo legal way of thinking about things sets in motion a lot of quid pro quo legal questions. For example, what is our part in the quid pro quo deal? What role do we play? What do we have to do? What do I have to do to stay out of eternal prison? What behaviors might revoke my get-out-of-jail-for-free card? Conditioned by this legal paradigm, we tend to always look for the quid pro quo bottom line. That's what you do in a court of law. The quid pro quo bottom line. Will I lose my salvation? I get asked questions like this all the time. Do I lose my salvation if I do this deed? What if I do this? What about this? What about this? What about this? Trying to find, okay, what's the bottom line? What keeps me in my quid pro quo contract? What, what behaviors will disqualify me on this? And it comes out in a lot of other ways as well. We bring a legal framework to questions. For example, here's one that a few people have asked. When exactly is fornication fornication? 
legally, technically now. Uh, uh, what constitutes, how far can we go before it's boom? And what they're asking is, okay, how close to the edge can I get before I get the prosecuting attorney mad at me? I don't want to get mad at me. You know, how close to the edge can I get? When, when is it technically a violation? Quid pro quo, what's the bottom line? And see, what confuses us, if you bring this legal mindset to the New Testament, it confuses the daylights out of you. Because there are some passages which look like the only quid pro quo thing we've got to do is believe. If you believe in Jesus, you shall be saved. There it is. That, that my, my part of the deal is just to believe. Which means there's nothing I will, can do that will revoke my get-out-of-jail-for-free card. Which then leads to a bunch of people believing in Jesus, at least when a pollster asked them, what do you believe? And they live like total pagans. Uh, because, you know, they're just going to cash in on this real great quid pro quo deal. But of course, there's a lot of passages, and we just read two of them, that seem to suggest that we've got a big role to play in the quid pro quo arrangement. If we forgive, then God will forgive us, quid pro quo. If we judge, then God's going to judge us. And then now with that mindset, we start to worry again. What's the bottom line? Okay, if I have any judgment thoughts, is God going to judge me? Am I, do I lose my get out of jail for free card? If I, today I judged somebody. Was I unsaved in that moment? Um, you know, gosh, I might have some bitterness towards my, my, my uh, stepfather. Uh, does that mean then the guy's not going to forgive me? Well, you know, what's the bottom line here? And, and how do you define these things? And how do you know for sure? And at least all sorts of anxiety. All of that is because we bring to the text a legal framework. Now, the analogy of prosecuting judge and, and guilty defendants and Jesus as the advocate is not totally wrong. There is a legal dimension in the Bible. But as a paradigm, to understand the Bible as a whole, I want to submit to you that that is entirely wrong. It's the wrong way to interpret these passages. The New Testament does not see salvation in legal terms. It doesn't see forgiveness in legal terms. In fact, if you, if you see le forgiveness in legal quid pro quo terms, you don't have forgiveness anymore. No one really forgives. They just get paid off by somebody else. The New Testament doesn't see forgiveness in legal terms. It doesn't see freedom from judgment in legal terms. It doesn't think in quid pro quo terms. The Bible sees things in terms of a relationship, a covenantal relationship. So when you read the New Testament, don't think court of law. Think marriage. Marriage relationship. Because the truth is that God doesn't want to be seen as your prosecuting attorney. He wants to be seen as your heavenly lover, your heavenly spouse. And Jesus didn't come into this world to work out a quid pro quo arrangement to placate God's wrath. He came to express God's love to free us from the devil's wrath. And God doesn't want a, a legal quid pro quo relationship with us like you get from, a, from a, a, you know, a judge and a person on parole or an employer and employee. That's not the kind of relationship God wants with us. He wants an interpersonal, loving, intimate, marriage-like relationship with us. And the kingdom is not about finding a loophole to escape eternal prison. The kingdom is about learning how to live in a marriage relationship with God, learning how to uh, receive and express a fullness of life. It's about learning how to, how to dance with God and to live in the beautiful, radical kingdom. It's about learning how to experience and to express abundant life. And if you do that, the eternal stuff's going to take care of itself. The thrust is on here and now, receiving this life, dancing with God. Jesus' teachings aren't given as, a quid, as quid pro quo legal stipulations. Like, here's the contract you have with your probation officer. That's not the flavor of Jesus' teachings. 
They're given to describe for us what covenantal life with the living God looks like. And at the center of all of that is about freely receiving God's life and freely giving God's life. Jesus says, freely you have received, Matthew chapter 10. Freely you received, freely give. That's the essence of this dance. And so what Jesus is teaching us in a lot, a million different ways, it's about receiving God's fullness of life and expressing God's fullness of life. Now listen to this. Receiving God's forgiveness and expressing God's forgiveness. Receiving unconditional love and expressing unconditional love. Receiving freedom from judgment and expressing freedom uh, from judgment. But it's not a quid pro quo contract. It's about a free covenant that ushers us into kingdom living. It's like a kingdom cycle where we receive and we express and it's all, the whole thing, the receiving and the expressing is what it means to dance with God. It's what the kingdom life is all about. You can think about it this way. This is the reality of the kingdom. It's sort of a cyclical flow. God pours his perfect life into us, and we receive it freely. And as we receive it, we express it. And the more we receive it, the more we express it, but also the more we express it, the more we receive it. We're, we're, we're becoming kingdomized. We're getting involved in the kingdom flow. It's a holistic thing. It's a cycle that we're a part of. And you can't even theoretically... Separate the receiving from the expressing or the expressing from the receiving. The quid pro quo legal mindset wants to divorce, separate things. Well, technically, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? But see, in the kingdom, there's no chicken and there's no egg. It's just one thing. What it means for God, think about it like this. What it means for God to reign in your life is for him to reign over all your life, and that includes all your relationships. So, of course, your receiving kingdom life is inseparable from your expressing it, and your expressing kingdom life is inseparable from your receiving it. Receiving it. This is what it looks like to freely receive and freely give. They're inseparably wrapped up with one another. When we refuse to express to others what we freely received, it blocks our capacity to receive it. That's just a metaphysical truth. That's just the nature of the world that God has set up. It is impossible for you to experience and celebrate the free forgiveness of God to the extent that you yourself refuse to forgive. It just blocks it. It's impossible for you to experience fully the freedom from judgment to the extent that you are still living in judgment. It's impossible for you to express, to receive, and enter into right relatedness with God and not to be rightly related with others. To the extent that you're not rightly related with others, it affects your right relatedness with God. Why? Because the kingdom isn't just about you as though you're separate from your relationships. It's about you, and part of that is your relationships. You see, it's all part of one holistic thing. And so to drive home the holistic nature of the kingdom, Jesus is saying that whenever you ask for forgiveness, remember your own covenant with him to forgive others. They're all wrapped up together. In fact, ask God to forgive you the way you have forgiven others. And so if you haven't forgiven others, forgive them before you ask God for forgiveness. In fact, Jesus teaches that ex explicitly in, um, in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, if you come to the altar to offer up a gift, you know, which is kind of a, your, 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 uh, in the, the old covenant, your, your, your atoning gift, as you come to offer that and then you realize you've got uh, something against somebody, leave the gift, first go reconcile, and then come back and offer up your gift. Why? Because the kingdom isn't just about you and Jesus as though you could be separated from your relationships with others. No, it's about the whole thing. It's about the whole thing. You are, to a large degree, defined by your relationships. For you to be receiving life is for your relationships to be receiving life. If you're not willing to let that happen, it blocks your ability to receive life. 
forgive freely because you've been forgiven freely, and as you forgive freely, you'll enter into more of the experience of freely being forgiven. Unforgiveness. This is so, this is so crucial. Unforgiveness is a cancer. It is a cancer to the soul. I couldn't preach a sermon on a more important topic than this. Now, forgiveness. To the extent that we have unforgiveness in our life, bitterness in our life, have something against someone in our life, it is a pollutant. It is a cancer. It clogs up everything. It clogs up your spiritual arteries. It clogs up your relationship with God, your ability to receive. It clogs up your ability to be a full human being, to be free. You cannot possibly be dancing with God fully and freely and vibrantly fully alive if you've got unforgiveness in your heart. Even if it's totally understandable that you'd have that unforgiveness, even if it's justified by all human standards, it still is a cancer in your life and you need to be free of it. And so what the gospel's telling us to do is this. While we were yet enemies, God released us from our debt. We also are to release everybody else from their debt. Now that's what forgiveness is. It's simply releasing a debt. When someone does you wrong, it, 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 they, they detract from your worth. You've got this unsurpassable worth. When someone wrongs you, it's like they steal some of your worth. They owe you something. They owe you your honor, respect. There's a sense of indebtedness created. And so we, part of us wants to demand the debt. You owe me an apology. You owe me uh, you know, some sort of restitution here. What Jesus is saying is, let that go. That's what forgiveness is, let that go. As the core of the kingdom is that we can get our life and our worth and our security, our lovability, all of our core needs met by our relationship with God, which means we no longer have to be demanding them from others. You owe me, which means we are free to let them go. They can't really steal anything that's core to us because the core of us comes from God. And so we're empowered to forgive, to let go. Release the debts. Release the debts. That's all forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not saying what you did was okay. Forgiveness is not saying that what you did wasn't that bad. It's not saying that. It could have been heinous. It's just releasing the debt. Forgiveness does not mean that you're going to feel good about this person. Forgiveness does not mean that you'll even like the person. Some people just aren't likable. There's nothing non-kingdom about that. You're, you're commanded to agree with God that they have unsurpassable worth and they're worth Jesus dying for. But, but, but the stuff they do, you may absolutely hate and despise. That's okay. Forgiveness doesn't mean you're going to have warm fuzzies about anybody. Forgiveness does not mean that you're going to trust the person. The grandfather of someone in our congregation was saying, well, if you really forgave me, you'd let me babysit your kids again. Trouble is, he sexually abused the kids before. She ain't trusting him. And I wouldn't advise her to, but she can still forgive him. Trusting, I wouldn't trust most people to babysit my grandson until I get to know you really well. You know, th- that's just an earthly assessment. It's totally, but forgiveness is about releasing the debt. I'm not going to go walking around thinking about what you owe me, what you did to me, grumbling like that, because that, that, that that, that's a maggot in your brain that is just eating away at your soul, harming you in more ways than you can probably possibly imagine. Doesn't mean you even want to hang out with a person or even want to see the person again. That's okay. What they did maybe was so terrible, you just don't want to, but you still let them go. It's just releasing the debt, releasing the debt. And forgiveness does not mean that they'll reciprocate, that they'll, that they'll break down and cry and ask for forgiveness, or that they'll even acknowledge they did anything wrong. They may not. Who cares? It's not about them. Forgiveness, Paul says, about our enemies, 
to leave all judgment to God. Romans chapter 12, leave all judgment to God. He's the only one who can handle judging others. He's the omnipotent God. And so forgiveness is to say, you know what? Yeah, I would like to send you to help, but that's God's business. And I, I'm going to release you from that. And God, I turn you over to, to God. And at first it may be, and I hope God judges them. <laughs> you want to move beyond that as well. You, just, you trust that God will do the right thing. If God needs to you know, reconcile their accounts, he'll do it very well. Thank you. You leave it to him. Paul says, leave all vengeance, all wrath, all judgment to God. We're to walk free of all judgment. And as we do that, we begin to enter into that kingdom flow of the joy of living without judgment uh, and, and, and dancing with the, the triune God. Release the debt. Does someone owe you something in your own mind? Are you walking around with this? What Jesus is saying here is this. When you ask God to release you of, uh, of a debt, whatever someone has done to you, whatever debt they owe you, realize that you owed infinitely more of that than that to God, and he released you. So also, you need to release that, that person, whatever wrong it may, may, may have been. Yes, it may have been absolutely diabolical. Understandable that you'd be bitter about that. But can you see, can you see, the devil tries to tell us that we're empowered by hating somebody and, 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 and holding on to unforgiveness. But you're not being empowered. You're, you're continuing to be the victim. To the degree that we hang on to unforgiveness, we empower the victimizer to define us. When the truth is, only our God should have the right to define us. And he defines us very well and very beautifully on Calvary. Walk in a Calvary definition of yourself. Don't empower the ex-spouse or the mother or the father or the grandfather or whoever. Don't empower anybody to define you. To the extent that they empower you to define you, it's not just about you and them any longer. It affects your relationship with God and everybody else. God wants to be Lord over everything in your life because he's a holistic God. He wants to be Lord over this. And for him to be Lord over this is for him to take the judgment from you. You release it, and now you walk without any debt, without any, any, holding anyone to the debt, and now you're free. And now you're free. Close your eyes for a moment. I, I want to give the Holy Spirit a chance to apply this message to us. So let me ask this question. Search your hearts, and the Holy Spirit help us search our hearts honestly. Are you holding anyone to account? Honestly, is there a grudge, unforgiveness, bitterness in your soul? Will you, in Jesus' name, release that? What they did, perhaps, was just irritatingly insulting, or maybe it was absolutely nightmarishly heinous. Either way, can you just take that? And, and maybe right now, picture a giant hand in front of you. It's the hand of Almighty God. And he is saying, will you just give it to me? I can handle that. I'll take it. Whatever wrongs need to be made right, I'll do it. Trust me. Give it to me. And can you just somehow represent surrendering that bitterness and unforgiveness over to God by putting it in that hand. Maybe you see the person in your mind. Just see the person in that hand. It doesn't mean you're going to feel good about this person. It doesn't mean you're not minimizing at all what they did. 
It doesn't mean you're going to trust them. It doesn't mean you're going to feel good about them. It doesn't mean anything of the sort. It simply means you're right now committing to no longer be holding on to that. Let God hold on to that and turn it over. And as you do that, then say, God, as I have just forgiven this person, will you forgive me all of my debts, all of my trespasses, all of my sins? See, now you can pray this, the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive me as I have forgiven everyone who sinned against me. Release it. And see if that doesn't feel really good. This is radical chemotherapy for the soul. You're getting rid of cancer. You're getting rid of cancer. Just do it. Just do it. Father, empower us as we get all of our life, all of our worth, all of our significance, all of our security from you and you alone. Lord, empower us to let go, let go, let go. Put it in the hands and release it. No ifs, ands, or buts. Free us to see how the only one suffering by our unforgiveness is ourselves. How it clogs our spiritual arteries. How it just, God, and, and you want, you call us to be free. Freely we have received, freely give. Father, we freely receive life from you. We freely give it, even to our enemies. Free us, Lord God, to let it go. And Lord, if there's anybody here who needs to come forward for prayer at the end of this service because they just are finding it impossible to let go, or if there's any other need in their life, call them forward, Lord. As we walk out of here, Lord God, help us to do it in ways that express the truth that freely we have received and so freely we give. Meet our daily needs, Lord, we ask you, and help us to walk in total freedom for the life that comes from you is always free. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said one last time. Amen. God bless you guys. Prayer team, would you come forward? I invite you to come forward if you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for. Amen.